Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Power of the Gospel. So turn in your Bibles to Romans 8, 26 to 30, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Spirit's Groaning. I'm reading Romans 8, 26 to 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This now is the third time in this chapter that we read of groaning. First, we learned of creation's groaning, then the groaning of believers, and now the groaning of the Holy Spirit. Interestingly enough, when introducing the groaning of the Holy Spirit, Paul begins with the word likewise. That may mean just as creation groans and we groan, so also, likewise, the Holy Spirit groans as well. Now, that's a way of seeing the word likewise, but I think the context here leads in a different direction. We should read Romans 8.26 as saying, Likewise, or just as our Christian hope sustains us, so also, or likewise, the Holy Spirit also sustains us. In a creation that groans, in a fallen world in which sin, death, and suffering have their moments of triumph, in times when we might be tempted to despair, we are buoyed by hope, and likewise, we are also buoyed by the Holy Spirit. There's something about Christian courage and optimism that is remarkable. I think there are no tougher people in this world than Christians. We may be crushed, but we're not despairing. We may be down for the moment, but we rise. We never fold our cards and give in to hopelessness. Instead, joy and continuing optimism are a mark of all who truly believe. Christians can encounter setbacks that would cripple almost anyone else, but our optimism and courage are undiminished. Whether it be an illness or a demotion at work, or our best plans lying in ruins, or our own personal struggles with sin and defeat, Christians are upheld by an undying courage premised on the certain knowledge that our best days are not behind us, rather they lie ahead of us. We always rise from the ashes. We never surrender to defeat. We don't mourn for the good old days. Rather, we long for the glory that lies ahead. In Philippians 3.13, Paul says, He forgets what lies behind, and he strains forward to what lies ahead. Our eyes are set towards a future goal, a goal that cannot be taken from us. So in truth, we can lose our job or our friends and family, but we cannot lose our hope. We can groan under the load of present sufferings, but we believe the future is filled with promise and joy and expectation and the fulfillment of the promises of God. And that is the secret of the groanings we find in Romans 8. Groanings can speak of despair, of the crushing load of life's many disappointments and griefs, of the kind of things that cause many to lose all joy in living. And in truth, the groaning of this world can be a reflection of the cries of despair that are part of the human experience. Life in a fallen world crushes all hope in the end, but not so for us. Ours is a groaning of anticipation. The essential optimism that is a part of the Christian experience is not just that we constantly remind ourselves of the promises of God. Yeah, we do that, but that might not be enough. 
because we're all weak and, and given enough disappointments and enough sufferings, the promises by themselves might not be enough. And so likewise, just like the promises, so the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. He comes alongside of us and does what mere remembering the promises cannot do. The Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and whispers into our ears and lifts us up when we falter and ensures that we will not give up. But how does he do that? I notice that he does three things, and they are here in our text. First, he helps us in our prayers. Second, he intercedes for us. And third, he reveals to us the will of God. Let's very carefully examine all three of these activities of the Holy Spirit. First, the Holy Spirit helps us in our prayers. So here's the question. Why do we need his help in our prayers? And to that, we might answer, we need help to encourage us to pray. And while that may be true, that's not what the text says. You know, the Bible teaches us that we should always pray and that we should pray about everything. We should pray when things go well, remembering that every good and perfect gift comes from God and that we should remember to give thanks in all things. But we also have needs and moments of crisis, and we should remember to ask God for things we need, for as Ephesians 3.20 reminds us, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. We should pray when tempted. We should pray when we sin. We should pray when we struggle with doubt. We should pray when we see matters clearly, and when we have succeeded, we should always pray. Be in a running dialogue with God all day. Just do it. Relate to God all day long. But verse 26 tells us that we don't know how to pray as we ought. And I notice that Paul uses the word we. He includes himself in this formula. He might as well have said, I don't always know how to pray as I ought, and you're just like I am. You know, we might wonder how this could be the case in Paul's own life. I say this because on a number of occasions throughout his letters, Paul seems to utter prayers that are supposed to be read as model prayers. Paul is saying, watch me when I pray and learn to pray from me. You know, an example of that might be found in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. I mean, there he tells of bowing his knees before the Father, of asking God to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit, about being rooted and grounded in love, and an urgent prayer for comprehending the full love of Christ. I mean, that's how I pray, says Paul, and you should learn to pray that way as well. And yet, here in Romans 8:26, he confesses that often he doesn't know how to pray as he ought. Now, what can that possibly mean? Now, as I ponder that, I'm led to those times in Paul's letters where he says exactly that. I mean, one example might be in Philippians chapter 1, 22 to 26, where he expresses uncertainty as to what he wants. On the one hand, he says, he wants to die and be with Christ, and yet on the other hand, he wants so much to stay alive, which is so necessary for the well-being of the Philippian church. He says he's hard-pressed between the two, not knowing what to ask of God. But that's not the only example. Let's try another one from 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, which is related to his own personal problems. There he says, So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Now, many Bible students have struggled long and hard about what Paul actually meant by the thorn in the flesh. I mean, was it an illness or was it someone like Alexander the coppersmith, a man who Paul said did him much harm? And so there are all manner of theories of what the thorn in the flesh was. And here's what I think. It's entirely irrelevant as to what it was. What is relevant is that there is something in Paul's life that God knew he really needed and that Paul thought he had to get rid of. Let me say that again. There was something in Paul's life that he prayed about to God over and over again, pleading with God to take it away. And that very thing that he wanted so hard to get rid of was the very thing that he needed more than anything else. And God knew that. And Paul only discovered that later. All of us have the same experience. When should we pray for deliverance from our sufferings? And when should we pray for the endurance that is required and the strength necessary to go through them? Because as we all know, there are times when God simply waits for us to ask and healing is right there. And there are times when God wants to teach us the power of patient trust in ongoing difficulties. And that is what his loving, wise, and kind designs have for us more than anything else. And I think there are times in all of our prayers when we will not know what to pray for. No Christian teacher can give you a principle that will cover all these difficult prayers. No counselor will be able to tell you what only God knows. But in these times, at some mysterious level, the Holy Spirit will help you. He will guide your prayers just like he did with Paul when he said, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. And when the Holy Spirit directs you to pray, then pray those things with great fervency. Say, oh, Lord, perfect me. Oh, Lord, strengthen me to trust in your hand during this my time of suffering. Because without that prayer, you're going to lapse into despair and fall into disillusionment. But you will not do so, for the Holy Spirit will help you in your enterprise of praying. And when we come back, we're going to notice both the intercession of the Holy Spirit and how it is that he reveals to us the will of God. In Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us of the groanings of creation, ourselves, and now the Holy Spirit. We're beginning to learn of how the Spirit helps us in our weakness, first through guiding us in our prayer life. For even the most mature believer needs direction from the Spirit. After the break, we'll discover more about how the Spirit also intercedes for us and reveals the will of God in our lives. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations. It's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, broadcast, and publications. One of these resources includes the bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine. Each issue features engaging and thoughtful writings from Dr. John, Lafagaine's Phil Calloway, and guest authors discussing critical themes of faith. We encourage you to subscribe today to receive a free copy of our December issue mailed directly to your home. Now's the time to sign up if you haven't already. You won't want to miss the special Christmas reflections coming in the December issue. To subscribe or for more information, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.
Romans 8:26 teaches us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, or to put it another way, when our praying is exhausted and we do not know how to pray and what to pray, the Holy Spirit himself prays on our behalf. I love here what John Murray said. He said, thus the children of God have two divine intercessors. Christ is their intercessor in the court of heaven, while the Holy Spirit is their intercessor in the theater of their own hearts. It's a precious truth. I mean, think for a moment of the prayers of Jesus. John 17, a chapter in the Bible which is often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, records Jesus praying on the night when he was arrested. He would be crucified the next day. On that night, he prayed that God would keep his disciples. He fervently prayed that they would be sanctified in the truth. And he also prayed for those who would come to believe from their testimony. It was an incredible experience to have their Lord and Savior in such fervent prayer for them. But the prayer ministry of Jesus for his followers did not end with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right now in heaven, Jesus, as your great high priest, is interceding on your behalf, bringing your case before your heavenly Father, pleading for you. Since God the Father answers the prayers of the righteous, and since Christ is righteousness, I'm assuming that the Father is answering all of Christ's prayers, which he prays for us with a big yes. That's a precious truth. But here in Romans 8:26 and 27, we notice two persons praying. We are praying, but we're weak. The Holy Spirit is praying for us as he prays he's groaning. So why is he groaning? I know there are some who argue that this must be a reference to the gift of tongues. Now, even while I affirm the real spiritual gift of tongues, and what I say should not be interpreted as being negative about the gift of tongues, still, this cannot be tongues, for it is not we who are praying, it is the Holy Spirit who is praying by himself. But again, why is he groaning? Now, my Bible says that these are groans that are too deep for words. But I think that might not be the best translation, for the the Greek word here is the word adelatos, which simply means speechless. It's not that his groans can't be put into words. Rather, it is simply that his groans are not put into words. And it is here that we must remember the groanings in this chapter. Remember that creation groans, eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God, and we groan, eagerly awaiting our adoption, and in both cases, the groans are not the groans of despair, but agonized, expecting, and joyful yearning. Since this is so, we must not assume that the Holy Spirit's groanings are groans in which the Holy Spirit says, you know, he or she still hasn't gotten it right yet. Rather, the Spirit, as he prays for our holiness, groans in delight and expectation that your perfection, your victory over the flesh, and your complete holiness is just around the corner. You're almost there. You will reach your goal. You will be made perfect. You will be clothed in white without spot and wrinkle. And that's how the Holy Spirit prays for you. You know, back in Romans 7, we saw the great battle against the flesh, but here we see the Holy Spirit in prayer to the Father on your behalf, groaning in anticipation that he who began a good work in you will carry it to perfection in the day of Jesus. See, might I ask you how the Spirit's prayer on your behalf changes your outlook? Do you think you're losing or winning the war of the flesh? What does the Holy Spirit think? 
Now, we've noticed first that the Holy Spirit helps us and guides us when we pray. Second, we notice that the Holy Spirit has his own prayers for us, prayers that fill us with hope. And now third, let's take a bit of time and notice how the Holy Spirit reveals to us the will of God. Let's carefully work our way through verse 27. It begins with, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So let's ask and answer, who is the one who searches hearts? The answer is, this is a reference to God the Father. Whose heart is he searching? The answer is, he's searching our hearts. Consider how much emphasis the Bible places on that truth. Consider Psalm 139, verses 1 to 2. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Psalm 139 makes it plain that God's familiarity with me is of such a nature that he never stops observing me and that his knowledge not only includes all my past and all my present, it includes all thoughts and decisions I will make in the future. He understands all my motives thoroughly at a level I don't understand myself. Now let's add to that a further thought that is expressed in Jeremiah 17 verses 9 to 10. The heart is deceitful above all things, said Jeremiah, and desperately sick who can understand it. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, the Jeremiah passage wants to show that when God rewards or condemns people, he never does so superficially in a way that we might. How often have we come to a conclusion about someone else and we're missing some key facts? God is missing no facts. He searches so thoroughly, nothing is left unknown or undone about his people. Now, God the Father who knows everything about us also knows what is the mind of the Spirit in the same comprehensive detail as he knows us. Now, this is really interesting because according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, meaning in this passage, God the Father. And so what we have is that the Father is searching out the Spirit, and the Spirit is searching out the Father. You know, it's impossible to give an earthly parallel to this idea. I suppose the closest we might come to it is that of a married couple who have shared an extraordinary intimacy for a lifetime. I mean, the kind of a marriage that has put a high value on hiding nothing from one another. They've explored the other's past, their deepest thoughts, their most treasured joys, and their most sensitive sorrows and pain. They have come to know one another in a way that no one else does. But of course, this is imperfect because none of us even knows ourselves perfectly, never mind the other. But this is precisely what's happening in the Trinity. There is a deep interchange in the three persons who are the one God that leaves us without any aspect of comparison. Now imagine in contrast how limited and prone to misunderstanding all human communication is by comparison. But here, as the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with unexpressed groans, the Father knows exactly what the Holy Spirit prays on our behalf. He's not left guessing about the intent of the groans of the Spirit. But here's the kicker. When the Holy Spirit prays for us, his prayers for us are unlike our own prayers in this sense. We often don't know what to pray for. Am I to pray for healing or for patience and suffering is just one of those things about which I might have uncertainty. But the Holy Spirit, who has also searched the mind of God, now prays for us in accordance with the perfect will of God. 
He who perfectly understood the Father prays to the Father on our behalf in perfect accordance with what the Father wants for us. I can't even imagine the details of what is said, but I do know this. As I commune with the Holy Spirit, and as I am being led by the Spirit, and as I am learning to respond to the Spirit's promptings in my life, I am learning the will of the Father, and my prayer life is being transformed. And all of that is leading me to a greater and greater anticipation of that which is about to be revealed. I will be declared a son or a daughter of God, and that is why those of us who are believers simply have an abiding optimism that transcends all the difficulties we face. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have given us the Holy Spirit, whose groans on our behalf have transformed our lives so that we have an undying hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John, as we often do, we were chatting off air, and you told me about this message that during it, you had an aha moment. Something came to light for you. Yeah, it really dealt with this whole intercession of the Holy Spirit. I think all believers know that both Christ and the Holy Spirit intercede for us, so that's a very common Christian doctrine. Nothing new there for me, but the infusion of hope in which the Holy Spirit prays with this recognition that you know, my full glorification, the the success of this battle with my flesh, I mean, the Spirit knows that I will succeed in this battle because He will help me and that the things that are arrayed against me will fail. I I just was so overwhelmed with this, this intercession of the Holy Spirit and how hopeful it all sounds, especially in those moments, Ben, when you and I can think, man, am I making any progress in my spiritual life at all? And apparently, the Holy Spirit knows that not only am I making progress, but the progress will lead to this completion. It's a joyous thought. As believers, we can all be encouraged with this truth about the Holy Spirit and His unique role in our spiritual lives. He knows us intimately, and through His relationship with the Father, He intercedes for us perfectly according to His will and our needs. What a great study today on how the Spirit leads us and how we can be confident even when we don't know what to pray. Well, that concludes this week of The Power of the Gospel. But be sure to listen in on Monday as Dr. Neufeld begins our final week in Romans chapter 8. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The Bible makes it clear There is not a single passing moment where God is not present, active, sustaining. He is sovereign over everything, the oceans, the valleys, our tribulations, and our successes. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. How comforting to know that God is always present. That is the theme of Back to the Bible Canada's upcoming calendar. Our 2024 In All Things Scripture Reading Calendar pivots around Dr. John Newfeld's upcoming book, Arriving in the New Year. With stunning imagery, sneak peek quotes from Dr. John's book, and inspiring scripture, it reminds us that God is never far. We encourage you to request your free 2024 Scripture Wall Calendar 
in all things and follow along with a daily Bible reading plan inside. We hope it serves as a blessing upon your spiritual walk. To request yours today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.